great to be with you. I'm sounding very loud and echoey. Is that just me, or is it? It is. Okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. Lightning struck the building. Let's have grace for each other. It's been an interesting week in the Kruger household. Laura was in the UK visiting her sister for six days, and um, I was looking after our 10-month-old and three-and-a-half-year-old and um, trying to work alongside Ryan. I won't tell you which one was harder. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but um, it was a full-on week, and I had this moment, though, on Friday morning, Thursday night. I'd gotten through the worst of it, and I was scratching off our roster. Like, everyone who was helping me every night was, like, my joy as the last kid went to sleep. Oh, one more night. Thursday night, I did that. I woke up Friday morning with about a 1,000 messages. The UK's borders have been closed. Laura's going to be stuck there. And I was like, no, she can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she's swimming home. She better start now. Like, this is not happening. I had this moment of panic. Luckily, last night, she arrived back home at 1 o'clock in the morning, but she arrived home. And then at 5 o'clock this morning, Nathan started to cry. I was like, not my problem. Not my problem. I'm done. Okay. So that's been going on. I am a bit tired, but it is so good to be with you this morning. And every Kruger is alive and well and healthy, which is a miracle. Okay. Um, I love the holding of the papers. It reminded me of church back in the day where you had the overhead projector, and you knew you'd arrived in your service of the church when you used to control the overhead projector, and you used to put those little things there. And then we upgraded our technology and went from handwritten to printed. It was amazing. Kind of had that moment this morning. It was very nostalgic. Okay, I'm going to get started. We are in the book of Mark. We're back in Mark, and it's so good to be in Mark. We've just finished Exodus, and we're finishing off Mark. And I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the year, we actually finished the book of Mark in terms of following Jesus in his last few hours before the cross, his death, and his resurrection back at Easter when we did Holy Week and we, we tracked through the book of Mark and finished it then. But we, we're now going back to just before that moment to three stories, and these are the three last stories in the book of Mark in our two-year journey through this book, and they're amazing. We've got the text that we just read this morning, that story coming up. Then we've got next week, we're, we're going to hear what Jesus has to say about the end times and, and what it's going to look like when God wraps up human history and how we as Christ followers can anticipate and live in light of that reality. And then we land Mark, with an amazing story of a widow who shows what wholehearted devotion and love for God looks like. So that's where we're going over the next three weeks, and then we'll get into our build-up towards Christmas and, and all the anticipation and excitement of the coming of Jesus into this world. And um, it's an amazing way to end the, the book of Mark, these, these three stories. And I'm really excited about what we're going to learn about who God is and what it means to be in the kingdom of, of God this morning. And I think we're going to be able to relate to the experience that this scribe has because of COVID. Now, we've all had moments in COVID where we, we thought we were in, uh, in something when we actually weren't, where we thought we were close to something, but we were actually further than we realized. What do I mean? Well, I've been doing a lot of weddings in this last little while as a pastor because it's kind of opened up a bit. And <laughs> you, you get the 120 wedding, and then suddenly, oh, we might be going down a level. Or restrictions tighten, and suddenly they've got to go from 120 to 80 people. And you thought you were going to the wedding, and then you get that awkward email. Sorry, we had to reduce the invite list. And um, 
you're not in the 80. <laughs> you were in the 120. Um, we're really awkward if things change, we'll let you in. People have experienced that. I know that. And then for some people, it's even worse because you thought you were in the 80, like friendship circle. And that's the moment you find out you're actually in the 120. You were so close, but not close enough. That's kind of that moment that you feel. Or that moment where you're preparing to go on holiday. Oh, heartbreaking stories I've heard where you've paid, you've booked, you've done all the hard work, you feel fine, you've been careful, you're like, I am healthy, I am going tomorrow, mandatory COVID test positive, and you're like, I was so close to that holiday, and now it's gone, so close yet so far. We, I think we can all have COVID stories to relate to being so close yet so far, and at the center of the story this morning is a man who was so close to the kingdom of God yet so far. So close, yet so far. And that's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, is that it's, it's so upside-down that the people that you expect to be in the kingdom of God often aren't, and the people that you don't expect to be in the kingdom of God often are. And at the center of the story, we're going to see Jesus unpack this reality for this man. And as we do, we're going to see that it's wise to move towards Jesus sincerely, to be governed by love, and that you can't get close enough to the kingdom of God. I'm going to pray and we're going to work our way through it. Father, we we love you, we trust you, we rest in you. It is so good to be together as God's people this morning. Um, God, so good to sit under your word and learn from you and hear what it is you have to say. So good to worship you and feel our hearts orientate themselves towards what is true and real and big and glorious in this world. You, Father. God, you are, you are right now in the moment forming and shaping and reorientating hearts towards what is true and good and what brings life. And as we sit under your word, God, would you continue to reorientate our hearts? Would you continue to form us and shape us, no matter where we are in our journey of getting to know you? We love you, Jesus. We need you and we rest in you. Amen. So let's look at that first point. Move towards Jesus sincerely. So what's happening is there's a context to where we picked up the story this morning. And that context is that there was an encounter between Jesus and some Pharisees just before this man asks Jesus his question. And that encounter starts with a bunch of Pharisees going to Jesus with the desire to trick him, with the desire to catch him out, with, the, with a hostile intent of showing Jesus to be a fraud and a phony and not a good teacher of the law. We read that in Mark 12 when it says, and they sent to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Rhodians to trap him in his talk. And there's this idea of them being hostile towards Jesus. They're not moving towards Jesus with any sincerity to actually hear, to see what he's about or hear what he's about or hear what he's saying. They just want to trap him. And as they do that, um, Jesus sees through it and he answers amazingly this question, this hypothetical question. Because they're trying to catch him, they come with this hypothetical question about the resurrection because they know that the resurrection is a contentious issue. And they, they build this hypothetical question going, well, if a person is widowed multiple times and marries multiple people, who is she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus answers them this in Mark 12. He says, Jesus said to them, is, it not, is not the reason you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God? And then he goes on to quote from Exodus, the burning bush, which we did about two weeks ago, the reality that God is the God of the living, 
that he's the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the forefathers, and all those who are the people of God and rested in him, have a hope of eternity, have a hope that by the power of God they will be raised from death to life, and that this story is not the last story. And he quotes that to them, and he says, you don't know that because you don't know your scriptures, and you don't know the power of God in resurrection. If God is who he says he is, he's the God of the living. He's the one who brings life. And in that answer, the scribe that we come to today, this is the context to, to the start of our story. The scribe sees what Jesus has said. And he says, this, Jesus has answered this wisely. He's answered this well. He's answered this correctly. Maybe he has something to offer. Let's read from verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And so we see a scribe, we see a teacher of the law seeing this interaction, and he sees how Jesus has answered well, and there's a sincerity in his heart. He goes, that was a good answer. Maybe there's something about this person, Jesus, that I can learn from. I can learn from him. Maybe he's got some wisdom to impart. Maybe he's got something to offer. Let me go and ask him a question that I'm actually thinking about. Let me go and ask for clarity on, what, on this question that I have. And there's a sincerity in him. And so you have these two groups. The context is these two groups. The one hostile towards Jesus in their questioning, and the scribe who's sincere in his questioning of Jesus and genuinely wants an answer. And I want to pause here and, and ask, if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, or maybe you got dragged here, maybe you're online because of the baby dedications, and you're kind of like, I'm here because I have to be here. And maybe some of you are here because you want to be here. Maybe you're going, well, what is going on? What, what is Jesus about? What is this Christian faith about? And maybe in some of you, there's more of a hostility towards us. I will come, but I'm going to listen very carefully, and I'm going to catch them all out. I'm going to assess this community, and I'm going to see if they're as loving as they say that they should be. Maybe there's a bit of cynicism in your heart, a bit of anger, a bit of frustration. Your heart here is hostile towards the words of Jesus. Or like I said, maybe you've arrived a bit more sincere and you're going, hey, I'm going to dial in online, I'm going to come, I'm going to see what this is about. And the first thing I would say is no matter how you are here this morning, no matter how you've arrived, it's okay. It's okay. You might even have legitimate reasons for your skepticism and your cynicism and your anger because Christ followers don't always represent Christ very well. But here's the thing. Jesus answered both the hostile and the sincere. He answered their questions. And he answered both their questions with wisdom and truth. And so Jesus will answer your questions, and he will answer your questions with wisdom and in truth. But could I suggest something, that if you're here, it is better to approach Jesus with sincerity. Why? Because when you approach someone with sincerity, when you approach someone instead of confrontation but seeking clarity, you're going to ask the right questions. You see, that first group who were hostile towards Jesus asked them the most random question. They literally created a hypothetical question that would have no bearing on their life whatsoever to just try and trap him. The second man who goes to Jesus not seeking hostility but clarity asks Jesus a question that he's actually asking. He asks Jesus something that is actually going on in his heart that he needs clarity on. He's going, maybe, just maybe, I should see what Jesus has to say about this. 
You see, the claim of Jesus is that he is God and that he is with us, that he loves us and that he would give his life for us. If that is true, it is far better to come with him and ask some of the big questions you may be asking around purpose, identity, meaning. Where do I belong? What do I do with the parts of myself that I find ugly and I'm a bit ashamed about and I want to hide? What do I do with this? There's so many questions that you are actually asking. And the reason I think it's better to move towards Jesus with sincerity is because you'll get clarity on those questions, the questions that matter. You can then decide what to do with that clarity and what Jesus has to say about them later, but at least you'll be engaging the real Jesus and his real answers to real questions. And so this man comes to Jesus and asks him a very sincere question. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus' summary statement is, be governed by love. Be governed by love, if I had to summarize it. Let's unpack it. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus says, okay, your question is actually a question of priority. You're asking me what is most important. So I will tell you the most important is, and he's, he's answering this question out of all the laws of, that you find in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the commandments of God. What is the priority? What should I focus on? What should I make the main thing? That's this man's question. And Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what to make the main thing. But he starts, before he gets to the commands, he actually starts with the foundation. Before you get to commands, you actually need to understand the foundation of why these commands are important, why you would follow them at all. Two weeks ago, I got to do the Ten Commandments, and we really did unpack the order. It's important that the context of the commands, there's something that comes before them, and that there is a God that he is alive, and that he's at work in this world. That's why Jesus starts with the Shema. And the Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And the Shema is something that Orthodox Jews to this day will quote before every gathering that they have. The Lord your God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the Shema, and he starts there. It's the very foundation. If there is no God, there's no point in having commands. If there are multiple gods then you should actually assess each of their commands and decide which ones lead to life. But the claim of Jesus is that there is only one God. There is one creator of the universe. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, that is the first question that every single human has to answer. Is there a God? And if there is, who is he? And the claim of Jesus is nothing short than I am the creator of the universe. I am he. And so with that out the ways. um, most important is here, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Yahweh is God, and he is the only God. It would make sense if he's the creator, the sustainer of the universe, that he knows the ways of life. He knows how he made this world to function. He knows what his intent and the design of this world was and how to best align ourselves to it for life. And it would make sense then to obey his commandments. So that's the foundation laid out by Jesus, reading from Deuteronomy. And then he goes on to unpack and simply say, well, then the next two greatest commands, if you've settled that foundation, the commands, the greatest commands are love God and love people. That's a simple summary of what he he goes on to say, love God and love people. This faithful covenant loving God 
that we've just spent a whole bunch of weeks learning about in Exodus says that the two greatest commandments of all is that you would return my love in love and that you would express my love to others. You see, this is important because what this scribe is asking is he's saying, given all the ceremonial laws, given all the religious laws, given all the sacrificial laws, given all the social laws of how we're meant to engage with each other, what is most important? And he elevates love God, love people. Which means that's the goal, that's the summary, that's the fulfillment of living out obedience to the laws. So if we're here as Christ followers and our love and affection for God isn't growing in our obedience and our love and affection for people isn't growing in our obedience, we're doing something wrong. We're obeying in the wrong way. And this, these rules, they resonate with us as humans that love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others as you love yourself has that second half, we've lopped off the first half about loving God because we love our autonomy and independence as humans. But that second half of love others as you would have them love you has become known as the golden rule. And since it's been found in Deuteronomy, you will find it in religious writings of almost every religion that there is. To this day, in, in kind of Middle Eastern and even now New Age ideas, philosophies, and ideologies, you still have this golden rule, love others as you love yourself. It resonates with us as something that is true and real and good. And I'll just unpack it a bit, this, this golden rule, because it's so important that we understand that this golden rule, which is to love others as we love ourselves, comes in a priority. It comes in an order. Jesus is literally saying, I'm giving you the priority. I'm giving you the order. And it actually starts with loving God. And we can't figure out and make sense of what it means to love others until we're first loving God brings priority and order. Verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is an all-consuming love. This is a love that governs and guides and leads every dimension of what it means to be a human. What it means to be us is governed and dominated by a love for God. You see, he says that. He says, with all your heart. That means our affections, our devotions, and allegiance flow towards God out of our love for God. Soul, our beliefs, our hopes, our faith, our trust is all put in God because of our love for God. Our mind, that our thoughts and our understanding, every ideology, every way of thinking, every worldview, every thought, every single thought that we have is governed, led, and decided upon by our love for God. And then finally, strength, that all our actions, all our doing, everything that we give ourselves to, everything that we orientate our lives, our energy, and our strength towards is governed, led, and controlled by our love for God. So when I say it's an all-consuming love for God, it literally is an all-consuming love for God. That's the first commandment. Then the second one, is this, verse 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' logic here is actually very clear. It's, It's a very simple logic. The way in which we love ourselves, the way in which we desire our good, the way in which we meet our own needs, the way in which we strive to fulfill our own desires and wants and dreams, the way that we seek our comfort, safety, and belonging should be a means to understanding what it is to love others. 
not a means of setting the target of all those things on ourselves. The kingdom of God literally inverts everything. Love for self suddenly becomes a tool for loving others. That's the goal here. And as we focus on ourselves, and as we, we understand what it is to love self, we start to realize that in the kingdom of God, self is never the goal. It is first and foremost a love for God that motivates us towards a love for others. You see, some of us might sit here this morning and say that our greatest problem is that I do not love myself enough. And God in this moment would say, no, our greatest problem is that we love ourselves too much. And we don't love others enough. See, I am an introvert. I never get bored with myself. I find myself quite interesting. Um, I can sit and stare out a window for hours on end. Lars like, don't you get bored? I'm like, no, should I get bored? But the problem is, because of that tendency, I also sometimes have a tendency to get quite introspective, quite self-focused. And I will descend into this thinking of, um, oh, what's going on in my heart? And I, I'm prone to, to emotions and feelings of dissatisfaction. Always going, oh, it's not quite what it should be. I'm not quite what I should be. I don't quite have what I want. And I can feel in those moments my fears, my doubts, my shortcomings, my failures, my desires, my wants, and my needs, needs all kind of raising to, right, being pushed to the surface of my soul. I can get quite down and I can get quite sad as I focus on myself and I become aware of these things. And as I focus more and more and more on myself, I find that the spiral continues more and more and more in a downward direction. When I just think about my, myself, what I need, what I want, and what I don't have, it's not good for me. And the reason that that happens, and the reason that this is the second command, is that we were never designed to be so focused on ourselves. We're too small, we're too finite, we're too fallible, we're so imperfect. We're not big enough for our souls, we're not big enough to be the focus and the center of our universe, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings. We're just not made to be there. God is made to be at the center of our thoughts, affections, emotions, beliefs. And as we focus, we're meant to spend most of our energy and time focusing on who He is. And focusing on what others need. You see, we will always be underwhelmed by ourselves. I know how finite and flawed and limited I am. I will never satisfy my soul. I will never satisfy my intellect. I will never have enough energy to do all the things I want to do. I will always be underwhelmed by myself. I'm too small to deal with my anxieties. I'm too small to deal with my fears. And I'm too small to deal with my depressions. And so focusing on self is never going to be the solution. I am at my most miserable when I am at my most focused on myself. And the people that I meet who are the most miserable people to meet I'm going to say it bluntly, are often the people who are most focused on themselves. And so God would say the first commandment is love 
God. And any inclination or orientation you have towards understanding what it is to seek your own good, turn that into a desire to seek the good of others. And we hand over responsibility of our focus on self and our good to God. And we trust Him with it. And I think this is a really important point. Because during this time of COVID, we've been more isolated than ever. It's given us a lot of time for self-reflection. And you might think, Ian, are you a bit bipolar? Because at the beginning of the year, you did Emotionally Healthy, and you said it's really good to do self-reflection. Self-reflection is very different to self-focus. You see, self-focus is where I am so focused on what I don't have, what I want, and it becomes about me, and I become small, and I get stuck in myself. Self-reflection is where I understand these two commandments, and I go, oh, God, there's stuff going on in my heart. I'm not satisfied. But I know, what, I know that you call me to be satisfied in you. I, I hand that over to you. God, I'm, I'm feeling a bit lonely. I'm feeling a bit, bit isolated. And instead of slipping into this victim mentality of no one loves me, I'm motivated by love for others to let my self-reflection grow me. And I go, whoa, if I'm feeling this way, there must be a whole bunch of people around me feeling this way. Let me reach out and love to them. It orientates us away from ourselves. So self-reflection is not a bad thing when we're not the center of that focus. We have to look at ourselves sometimes, but we're still orientated towards loving God and loving people. Can you see the difference between self-focus and self-reflection? The one is me, me, me. The other one is how do I grow to love God more, love others more, given the reality of me? And then some of you will go, well, I don't know if I love myself, so I don't know if I can do this, because if I don't love myself, then I don't know how to love other people. And I would say to you that there is a big difference between not liking yourself and not loving yourself. And C.S. Lewis has such a helpful comment here that I'm going to read. You are, too, you are told to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? When I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking myself a dear old chap or having affectionate feelings. I do not think that I love myself because I am particularly good, but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something which I have done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christ Christians make between hating sin and loving the sinner is one that you have been making in your own case since you were born. You dislike what you've done, but you don't cease to love yourself. You may think that you ought to be hanged. You may think, even think that you ought to hand yourself into the police and own up and be hanged. Love is not affectionate feelings, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And in the kingdom of God, we no longer live with a steady affection and desire for our own ultimate good, but turn those desires into a steady affection and love for others' ultimate good. So that's command one and two. But the reality is that the scribe knew these commands. The reality is that the scribe would have said the Shema probably countless times a day. He knew that the Lord was one. He knew what Jesus was, was saying. He was obviously sincerely going to Jesus and going, 
I want to check. This is what I think is the, the highest priority. What would you, you've answered so well. What would you say the highest priority is? And they have this aha moment. You know that moment where there's a contentious issue and you find someone and you ask about the content and you find out you're in the same boat. You've, you see things the same way. You're like, ah, oh, a kindred spirit. Such a nice feeling. And they have this moment. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and all, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the scribe goes, Ah, you think like I do. You've affirmed my suspicion. That to love God and to love people is the summing up of all the commands. It's what we're called to do. I'm on the right track. That's amazing. And what's so interesting is that he sums up mind and, and heart as understanding. It's a different word. He actually says it differently to Jesus. And he speaks of understanding. He's like, we understand what it is to obey God. We understand what is priority. We, I've got the right understanding. And this scribe is an amazing guy. I've, as I've prepared, and I'm like, this, this is a good guy. Because to affirm Jesus in such a hostile environment, especially when a whole bunch of Pharisees have literally just tried to take him down, was risky. He's a scribe. He's basically a, a student of theology, and he's going, I back you. That's a good answer. And he's willing to admit that Jesus is speaking truth, that Jesus is speaking wisdom. He's a good, seems to be a really good, sincere guy. And Jesus himself says that, that he is, is a wise guy, 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus affirms there's wisdom in this guy. He does have good knowledge. He does understand the law. He has done well to realize that it's not about the burnt sacrifices and, and uh, ceremonial laws ultimately, but those things are meant to lead to deep affection for God and deep love for people. He's doing well. He's wise. This scribe is also a man born of the people of God. He's an Israelite. As I said, he's a student of the law. He has a sincere heart. He has appreciation for Jesus and his wise answers. Which is what makes what Jesus says next so jarring. Verse 34, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So often the, the, the encounter with Jesus ends with people being silenced. It's like, there's something about this man that I'm, I'm not going toe-to-toe with him anymore. And this scribe would have left this encounter with Jesus going, what do you mean I'm not far off the kingdom? I'm right in the center of the kingdom. You yourself said I have right knowledge about the kingdom. I'm prioritizing the commands correctly. What do you mean I'm near to the kingdom of God. And, and what he learned in that moment was that he was close to the kingdom, but he was not close enough. He was having that moment where he realized he thought he was in the 120, in the 80 guest list, he's in the 120 guest list. That's the moment he's having right now. He thought he was going on holiday and his plans have just changed forever. And he walks away from that. I don't know what Jesus meant by that because I'm right in the center of the kingdom. We've got to ask, well, how can a scribe who's getting it so right, right knowledge, sincerity, moving towards Jesus, what did he miss? Because at this point in time of the story, both him and those hostile Pharisees are far from the kingdom of God. And the key is what he says in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You are right, teacher. 
as we've journeyed through the book of Mark for the last two years, we've said that the first half of the book of Mark is Mark telling story after story after story of how everyone's trying to make sense of who Jesus is. And then right in the center of the book, he reveals who he is in the person of Peter, Mark 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the, to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciple, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, um, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are God with us. You are the Savior. You are the Redeemer. You are the promised one. You're not just a teacher. You're my Savior. And that's what the scribe missed. You see what he did? Jesus has affirmed my answer. Love God perfectly. Love people. Thank you, Jesus. In my power, I'm off to go and do those things. And Jesus answered those previous scribes. You do not know your scriptures, and you do not know the power of God. Jesus would answer this man, you know your scriptures, you do not know the power of God and how much you need a Savior. I don't know how you felt when I was reading those two commands. I don't know if there was a sense in you in which you went, okay, great, thank you, Ian. That's exci- I actually get excited about this. This is amazing that, I, that the greatest commands are love God and love people. That's amazing. That's a good thing. I can get behind that. Thank you for inspiring me, Ian. I'm out the doors. I'm going to do the best I can. You can't do it. You can't do it. If you were there and you thought you had any inkling that you could go and do those commandments apart from the power of God at work in your life, apart from knowing Jesus as Savior, you are in a very dangerous place because you are close to the kingdom, but you are not in it. Because you don't need knowledge and you don't need sincerity. You need Jesus and his power at work in your life. And you need to bow your knee to him as Savior, King, and Lord of all. You don't have what it takes. I know this so well. Let's just do a litmus test quickly. We're not even going to do a week. We're just going to do this morning. Was your heart full of affection, devotion, and allegiance to God perfect in every way? Was your soul full of hope, faith, trust in Jesus out of a perfect love for him? Or did it waver at all? Was every single thought that you thought this morning, every intention that came to mind, pure, in your love for Jesus? Was every action, everything you did this morning, aligned to a perfect love for God? And did everything you do today not focus ultimately on yourself, but on the flourishing of others? I can't answer yes. I don't think any of us can answer that yes, and that's just this morning. We do not have what it takes to live out these commandments and for those of you who, as I read the commandments, you started to feel burdened by them. You're like, yo, this is a big ask. I know what goes on in my heart. I know what happens here. This is, this is difficult. That's a good thing. That means that your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength are being honest about their limitations. And they're warning you. That's the gift of the Spirit going, you can't do this. Jesus gives his reason for coming in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
the whole point that Jesus stepped into human history is that every single human failed the first two commandments, to love God perfectly and love people perfectly. That we turned in on ourselves and make our whole lives about stuff. We fight for autonomy from God, and we fight to have everything we need at the expense of everybody else around us. It's called sin. It's why Jesus came into this world. He said, I would go towards a cross and I would lay down my life. And what's beautiful about that is Jesus and Jesus alone love God perfectly and love people perfectly. It's what made him worthy of a cross. It's what made him worthy to be the substitutionary atonement, to be the one who stood in our place, the one who was perfect for the imperfect. And if you find yourself asking the question, how do I love God like that? How do I love people like that? One John gives us the answer. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. You cannot obey these commands and you cannot love people the way you're meant to love until you have experienced the saving love of Jesus for yourself. You need to come to Jesus not as a teacher, not as a, as a person of wisdom, not as a, another option of many world views amongst many other worldviews. You need to come to him as King, Lord, and Savior. And he opens up the book of Mark and the kingdom of God is here, repent, which is a simple bowing of the knee. I need you and your power at work in my life. That's how we come to God and that's what the scribe missed. Love for God does not start with us. It starts with him. We need his spark of love, his eternal, never-ending, faithful love poured into our hearts in such a way that we are motivated to love him and love Others, apart from him, we cannot do it. We are not left to the small little bags of our resources. We are given the infinite resource of God's love as we encounter and experience him. Could I ask the band to join me up here? You see, it is this love that welcomes us into the kingdom which none of us belong. And it is this love that starts to change us and transform us into the kind of people who belong in the kingdom of God. We're going to respond. Hopefully we're going to respond in sincerity. And I hope some of you feel relief that those commands don't rest ultimately on you, but on the finished work of Jesus. But I also hope that you realize that this doesn't let you off the hook. Because if you've truly experienced the love of God, there will be a deep, longing and motivation to grow in your love and affection for God and to grow in your love and affection for others. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond in worship. Father, these are challenging words, but also liberating words. Father, at one point we look at ourselves and we realize we don't have what it takes. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. We don't have the ability. And in that moment where we feel a bit overwhelmed by your call on our lives, we are reminded that you loved us first. And Father, for those of us in the room who are investigating your claims, I pray that you would, by your spirit right now, help people experience not just words, not just knowledge, but the living God himself. And would you pour out your presence into their hearts? Would they, if you're here, maybe you're getting a sense of, wow, this resonates, it's true, I don't know a lot, you don't need to know a lot, you just simply need to know who Jesus says he is and what he's done. He does so much of the work. And you simply respond to him and go, God, I want to move into closer relationship with you. 
but I've had a burden in my prep for Christ followers who are close, or those who think they're Christ followers who are close, but you're not close enough. And the reason is that you think you have what it takes and you've stopped relying on the grace of God or you've never relied on the grace of God. If that's you, I want to pray a prayer for us. Father, maybe for the first time, but freshly, we remind ourselves, God, that what we need is your grace poured out into our lives. We need you, Savior, King. That we don't have what it takes that we don't have what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. We need you, Jesus. It is a love that calls us, beckons, and welcomes us into the kingdom, and it is a love that keeps us in the kingdom. God, we strive to love you, to know you, to enjoy you more, and we strive in all your energy, strength, and love towards us to love others better. And when we fail, God, we return to your love. We return to your grace. Would you motivate us from that space to keep growing, to keep trying? Keep being obedient, rooted and rested in your finished work. God, would you wake up sleeping Christians? Would you wake up those of us who have lost sight of the beauty of who you are and what you've done? And that we're just going through the motions, we're just doing Christianity, we're just doing obedience. I pray that you would pour out your spirit in such a way that there is a spark of affection for you Uh, are coming alive in in souls this morning, God. Father, for those of us who've lost sight of your goodness and your grace, and we are striving under the toil of legalism and trying to earn our way into the kingdom, would you bring liberation right now and freedom? Father, for those of us who feel nothing towards you, would you warn us that for those who've experienced your love There is a growing of our love and affection for you. And would you cause that to take place, Jesus? We love you. Let's stand and sing.